What's it like to be neurodivergent in a society where access even to more general health care is a challenge? Getting a diagnosis is very much a privilege in a Pacific context, but also in general. Going through this journey with my sister, you know, going through the mental health unit and the healthcare system in our country really shone a light on me on the level of care that is currently not there for people uh, who have neurodiverse needs. Being autistic or having attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder or ADHD can be isolating when no one in your community understands or accepts your behaviours. It can be particularly hard to fit in at work. When given really big projects, for example, people with ADHD can get very overwhelmed because they don't have what's called time horizon. Another team member with autism, for example, requires very clear, explicit communication. If you worked in corporate and you're listening, you know that clear, explicit and very accurate communication is hard. Samoan sisters Okalani Marina and Olisana Marina Hughes are changing attitudes and lives by sharing their own experience of neurodiversity, both on social media and in their social enterprise company, One Look Studio. I'm Rutha Alec, filling in for Hilda Wayne. Sisters, let's talk about being neurodivergent in the Pacific. Before we meet Oli and Nani, let me introduce myself properly. My name is Rutha Alec, and I'm a radio announcer at VBTC Paradise 98 FM in Port Vila, Vanuatu, and originally from southeast of Ambram Island. One of the things I love the most about Sisters Let's Talk is that it makes us think about people in our communities who are marginalized or excluded. That might be because of their gender, sexuality, poverty, health, or disability. Nani Marina and her sister Oli Marina Hughes are on a mission to make their society more inclusive for people who are neurodivergent by making memes and videos that highlight what it's like for Nani to have autism and ADHD. Nani and Oli spoke to Sisters Let's Talk producer Alice Matthews about their experience and how it led them to start a social enterprise that advocates for better mental health support services in Samoa. Here's Nani. The whole heart behind building our business was actually that there are not enough to none mental health services and resources within Samoa to support anybody who is neurodiverse or experiencing mental and emotional distress. Here's a quick lesson on the word neurodiversity. It's used to describe people who live with learning disorders and intellectual disabilities. So it can be a catch-hold term for conditions like autism, ADHD, dyslexia, and developmental speech disorders. So when we started our business, it really came from a personal experience of, wow, there there isn't any advocacy going on or there isn't really any awareness going on with the mental health crisis within our country or just general people who need support. And so when we started our business, it actually started as, I'm definitely not going to get a job anywhere else if I don't start a business because no one's going to hire me because of my mental illnesses. And then when we started, a lot of what we pushed is like, neurodiverse people or people with autism and ADHD really need a lot of accommodation compared to neurotypical people, which is what we call people who are normally like considered in social communities like normal. People who are neurodiverse need a lot more accommodations. And some of that looks like being okay with 
having emotional meltdowns or sensory issues within my office, what I've really noticed is that we have a lot of accommodations for people with neurodiversity. And I think my sister can touch up a little bit about what that looks like and how different it can look like to the standard corporate world within Samoa and just in general. But yeah, I think one thing I definitely notice within the corporate space is that there are no accommodations for people who are neurodiverse and identify it with autism or ADHD. What we've noticed is that there's just a gap there with the interventions. There are youth interventions, there are violence based on gender interventions, there's medical interventions, but there were gaps that we sort of identified. And one of them was that uh, those in our age range, you know, those who identify as Gen Z or millennial that are entering the workforce, didn't really have a place because most of the interventions on island were geared towards young children or youth, preteens, and then elderly. So, you know, age care. And there was sort of this gap in the middle. And a lot of my peers and my friends, when we were having conversations around burnout, there's a common term that's used in the mental health space called comorbidity. And when we were having these conversations, it seemed a lot like, you know, a lot of the millennials had the the language as well as Gen Z for what was going on. But it was the communication barriers when talking to their then, you know, Gen Y or Boomer supervisors, executives on the accommodations that are required in order to function within a capitalist society and also within our cultural context in Samoa. In other words, younger people who use global platforms like TikTok, Twitter and Instagram have a much better understanding of neurodiversity, what to say and more importantly, what not to say and how to make sure they are included. But older generations, the people who are generally in charge, didn't grow up in a society that understood learning disabilities, let alone knew the difference between autism and ADHD. So sometimes unintentionally, other times deliberately, they don't make adjustments in the workplace to include neurodiverse people. It's a bit like having an employee who uses a wheelchair and making them work at the top of a staircase. For example, someone with ADHD has executive dysfunction. And so executive dysfunction can look like hyperfocus, demand avoidance, like having difficulty understanding the complexes of process, task paralysis. And so when given really big projects, for example, people with ADHD can get very overwhelmed because they don't have what's called time horizon. And again, this is on a spectrum. So some have it in more varying degrees than others. Another team member with autism, for example, requires very clear, explicit communication. If you've worked in corporate and you're listening, you know that clear, explicit, and very accurate communication is hard when you're dealing with different levels in the hierarchy or even just communicating with clients. As a supervisor or if you're a person in a position of power that's looking after and having and having to care for a team on the spectrum, you have to sort of acknowledge that different people have different needs and then talking with them about a list of specific accommodations that is relevant to that person and then bringing those accommodations into a wider team discussion and saying, hey, these are my strengths and these are my weaknesses. The business they started is called One Look Studio. It's a design and virtual assistant agency specializing in social media and digital transformation. They also have a growing audience on their TikTok and Instagram pages. And they use their platform to advocate for people with mental illness and to promote inclusion. There's days where I feel like I know it all, and then I wake up the next morning and I'm like, wait, none of that makes sense. 
and then later I'll feel like, oh, wait, it's all clicking, and then it's not. A lot of what I do on social media is really just sharing my lived experience. And what that looks like is explaining to people what stimming looks like, what a sensory meltdown can look like in the workplace or at home, and acknowledging that that is very, very common within people who have autism, but also it isn't something to be ashamed about or shame your child for. So when I'm on social media, a lot of what I'm talking about is like my experience within the mental health unit in Samo, but also in my personal life and some coping strategies that I've just used to help get through that. And a lot of the feedback and the response I get are from parents whose children have just recently been diagnosed with autism or who have children with dyslexia uh, or um, dyspraxia, which is basically um, struggling to read and write and also understand numbers. Uh, and so when when people respond, a lot of what I do is, hey, these are some things that really helped me as a child um, and are still helping me to this day. But yeah, a, lo- a lot of what I do on social media is really just sharing awareness because I think making a space or a safe space for parents and just individuals who identify as neurodiverse to acknowledge that this is something that they also struggle with and this is something that they also have is the first step before you actually start really talking about what it is or how to address mental health and ADHD. Have you noticed that people that are connecting with you over social media are perhaps realising for the first time that they recognise similar behaviours in themselves? I think that is this has been a trend in the last past years while we were advocating where friends and family who always have known us start watching our stories or start watching our social media accounts and being like, oh my gosh, I actually never knew you had autism. I just thought that was something we all shared. And now the more I look at you and the more I look at your social accounts, the more I realize this very much is relatable and this is something I struggle with. But yeah, it has been very much just like a lot of people just having a light bulb moment being like, oh my gosh, this might be something that I relate to. But also in saying that, one thing we also really put out as a disclaimer on our social platforms is we are not clinical professionals and mental health professionals. So we can't actually diagnose you for autism or ADHD because a lot of people, although positive response, there is a negative, like, you know, everybody has dimming or everybody experiences like a meltdown once in a while. And I'm, and yes, they do, but you have to acknowledge that people with autism and people who are neurodiverse experience it much more frequently and much more intense than normal people do. When we say we have autism and when people tell us that, you know, they relate to a lot of our symptoms and they relate to a lot of the things that we experience, if they themselves decide that this is something that they relate to and they think that they identify with, we also remind them that, you know, if you do not have a diagnosis, but you look at this, you look at all of the the posts and all the social media awareness we do, and you think that you have autism, getting a diagnosis is very much a privilege in a specific context, but also in general. So if these posts are helping you, absolutely take them on. But we just want to let you know, we, you know, we cannot clinically diagnose you as health professionals. We can only give you our lived experience and share our lived experience and share some of the strategies and just things that have helped us work on our day to day. But but yeah, mm. definitely we have had a lot of response saying, you know, that is 100% relatable, but they also feel very personally attacked. So I think that's just very entertaining as well. Just having friends and family being like, I don't like looking at your social media page anymore because I just feel constantly personally attacked every single time I'm looking at the, the account. How important is it to use that your own brand of island humor to connect with people over something like this? 
really important. I think when you are trying to raise awareness for any campaign at all, you always have to have a cultural context of who you're advocating to and who you want to raise awareness, like the community in which you want to raise this like awareness for your campaign for. So for us, we really use like island humor and also merging or just like adding a little bit of someone language into it so that they can see that it is very much a personal relationship. This isn't someone coming outside and telling you how to run your run or like diagnose you. This is someone that has lived in Samoa her whole life, you know, who has been through the system, who has experienced this. And so when you share cultural context or just your personal Samoan humor, it makes it a lot more relatable and a lot easier for people to be open to learning about it. And they don't feel as much reservations when it comes to learning about, you know, a new diagnosis they might think they have, like autism or ADHD or anxiety, even there. One of the things we've noticed just on the social media side of things is that it works really well for the Pacific. It comes from a really strong oratory background. When dealing with such complex, big words like neurodiversity, depression, anxiety, those don't translate directly in in the Samoan language. And so rather than going clinical and using very technical terminology, we use storytelling. And storytelling as a means of sharing our lived experience, I have found works across generations. When trying to get my great-grandmother to understand what ADHD looks like, I don't say ADHD. I tell a story about something that she did as a young child and a story she told me and then told her that Nani is experiencing the same thing and that she's having this sensory experience or this meltdown or she's stimming with her body as a result. And there you, therein goes the tie to how neurodiversity is genetic. But I'm not using that sort of complex terminology. And we're very aware as well that having access to information such as this is a privilege. And so when we're trying to communicate on social media, oftentimes we we share with others in the diaspora to share your lived experience story and to tie it back to something that you've seen in your family and then how that relates to your personal experience and how you go through life. And I think that's what I would say Nani does well on TikTok and Instagram. And we've seen a lot of engagement on those posts the most, rather than the more clinical, technical ones, which are very helpful. But the ones that do sort of, you know, resonate with the community are the stories. You're listening to Sisters Let's Talk on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Ruther Alec, filling in for Hilda Wayne for a few weeks on Sisters. And we're learning about neurodiversity. From Samoan sisters Nani Marina and Ollie Marina Hughes, Nani describes herself as ADHD, which means she has autism and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Together, they started a design and virtual assistance agency. And as employers, they appreciate the importance of making accommodations for their neurodiverse colleagues. Here's Ollie. We sort of show what the other side can look like when people with neurodiversity thrive. And we want to spotlight that with a little bit of humor, which you can see on our TikTok and our Instagram page, but also with that element of education. When we talk about autism, it's a spectrum. Oftentimes in the media, traditional um, streaming services such as Netflix and also on the radio or when you're reading a book, it's heavily centered on the white cis heterosexual experience of a young boy who has autism. Nani and I do not fit that age bracket. And a lot of the experiences that are shared on the media do not align with what 
we were experiencing in Samoa, you know, just in our personal lives, structurally and on a policy level. And so in our business, what we aim to do um, is sort of educate on what this looks like and what accommodations can practically look like when rolled out in organizations to support people who have these needs. Complex project management tasks that are often expected from supervisors, you're you're given a really big project. The expectation is to then break that project down into smaller parts and do a timeline for that and then break that timeline down into even smaller deliverables with milestones. People with ADHD really struggle with that because their sense of time and then also the anxiety that is felt by even starting can cripple them. And what we've done in our business is sort of acknowledge that this is an this is a need. And so project management tasks are broken down and we have weekly debriefs as a team. And I even have one-to-one sessions with team members who I know have expressed that this is a need they have to better understand. Working with autistic people on her team, Oli has made adjustments to ensure her communication style is inclusive. When I'm speaking with my team about what my desires are, what my expectations are, I have to give them a lot of clarity. And that's been a huge shift from sort of my old style of leadership and communication and that acknowledging how I'm speaking and saying information may not be how someone is receiving it and then taking it the next level up, which is like if I say I would I would like an email or a project to be sent out a certain way, outlining what dates look like to a, a team member who has autism, and then also specifying, you know, what an acceptable length of an email is. Using the social media platforms to promote neurodiversity has also caught people's attention. What we do to sort of bridge that divide is, like Nani said, do the humor. And the impact that we see it having is that the Gen Z millennial children of people who hold high positions in corporate or in government are DMing us and they're in our comment section. And they're the ones that are having the conversations with their parents, with their uncles, their aunties and their grandparents. And we would never have that reach. You know, we we might never sit in a room with the CEO or the minister, but their child is there with them every day and they're watching our content and they're like, oh my God, I'm really relating with this. And I see that mom does this a lot. And you know what, now that I think about it, grandpa has also sort of exhibited these same behaviors. Am I maybe neurospicy? <laughs> and, and, and so what we're hearing back is sort of these conversations that are happening broader, you know, not just directly to the people that we're talking to, but in their families and in their communities. They're having conversations with, you know, with their church, with their parents, with their grandparents. And by extension, I feel like that's a that for me really makes me want to get out of my bed in the morning and continue doing what I do because it is having an impact. And then again, the other side, you know, we sort of sit on the in, informed research side of getting a self-diagnosis because like Nani mentioned, getting access to care is a privilege, a financial one, an accessibility one. And then there's also stigma, bias and discrimination around the language that is used for autism. Because in Samoa, if someone exhibits autistic traits, it, they say, they have a bad head. 
you know, or or they're crazy and lazy. And that's not really friendly, accessible language that we like to use in our workplace or when we're communicating online. We like to explain and also like inform so that people can then go and do their own research. We include links. We add, you know, in the DMs when they message us, we share a spreadsheet or a PDF to some really great professionals that we have seen. And, and that's sort of the impact that we're sort of having on the, and we're trying to scale is there will come a point when there will be too many DMs and we can't get to, but how can we make sure that the people on our platform are using the content with care, that they're informed and making decisions about it? And that's the best we can do, you know, as lived experience leaders, because even though we're not clinical professionals, using social media for social impact in this way does have a ripple effect. Is it always just about the number of followers? No, it is definitely not about the number of followers. For Nani and I, when we share, we're not tracking follower growth purely as a KPI, which is a key performance indicator for our monthly marketing. We're looking at the DMs. We're looking at the comments. We're looking at the saves. Those are the metrics for me that mean a lot more because it's saying, wow, someone watched this, engaged with it, took time to comment on it, and then even saved it in one of their folders to go back to. That, like for me, is more nurturing of your online community than just number of followers. Number of followers is great because you'll get more reach about the activism work and the advocacy you're doing, but the numbers won't equal anything really meaningful in the long term if you don't nurture the community that you've been entrusted with and steward that really well. It's very easy to just put information online and talk about something, but you have to know who you're talking to. And like Oli mentioned earlier, we're not really talking to those big higher ups, those government leaders, because, you know, we might never have an opportunity to speak to them. But what we do know is that their children, Gen Z millennial, are always on social media and they're always with their parents. And so we know that, you know, our target audience is Gen Z millennial who are in the corporate space, you know, who are experiencing mental, emotional, ill health or distress. And so by knowing that it's very easy to frame your content to push towards them. And knowing that they're making content for Gen Z millennials who may have had their own experience with mental illness and neurodiversity, Ollie says it's important to take care of their followers. The word or the terminology safe space is is so overused in when you're talking about mental health. And for us, we take the perspective that you cannot have a safe space if there are no safe people there. And then taking it on the individual level, you create a safe space for people by being a safe person. And so we really put the emphasis in our social media awareness on safety and care and what that looks like for the person watching, but then also how they take what they've learned by watching that it then becomes a conversation. So because we try and advocate for workplace, any organization or company that wants to have conversations should have them with the people that it is about. So nothing about us without us. If you're going to roll out an inclusion plan um, with, you know, people who have disabilities, you should have those people at the table. And so taking the conversation or what you learn um, from your feed and online offline is so important. And we're trying to push our shift that way by then supporting, okay, what does that look like? You know, I've learned about stimming and I know that I do that very often, not just in my personal life, but at work. And I'm looked at 
like a weirdo when I have needs in order to do my job, in order to function in this society. We encourage them to then go talk to your supervisor or a safe person, because what happens is if those people don't exist in the places in which you do life, it's hard to get access to the care and the accommodations that you need. So social media is really for us a gateway or an avenue to get those really important conversations started in the workplace, in your homes and church, and then also on the wider policy government level That's that that talks about how, how can we make this different? How can we make it so that some other young girl doesn't have to go through the same experiences that Nani did when going through the mental health system? And that's sort of my encouragement to anyone listening, that at the end of the day, you can you can only impact that which is within your reach. And it can become very overwhelming when you're in this activism space for mental health and your mental health is so important and you should take, ter- take really good care of that. And by extension, just your personal health, because whatever you build, whether you build a business, whether you, you're doing very well in work, your your spouse, your siblings, your family, it's all on this tectonic plate that is your health. You remove, you know, your business, you'll still be there. You remove a sibling, you'll still be there. But if your health is not there, all of that stuff on top doesn't matter and it shifts. So we encourage anyone listening and watching our content, you know, really to take care of you. Safety is about you just as much as it is about other people. What a powerful message to end with. That's Ollie Mariner-Hughes and her sister Nani Mariner speaking to producer Alice Matthews. This was just one conversation about neurodiversity, but I hope it has inspired you to check out Ollie and Nani on TikTok or Instagram and learn a bit more about being inclusive. Thank you so much for joining me for Sisters Let's Talk on ABC Radio Australia. I'd love to hear from you, especially if you've got a topic you'd like us to cover. Send an email to sisters at abc.net.au. That's S-I-S-T-A-S at abc.net.au. Social media has given Oli and Nani a platform for their activism. And next time on Sisters Let's Talk, we'll meet three more women who have found success with the help of social media. It would really help anyone to get online on social media, especially in the Pacific, so that the world can see what you have. And then, you know, you've got the opportunity of, you know, sending it over. That's next time on Sisters Let's Talk. Sisters Let's Talk is an ABC Radio Australia production Presented by me, Rutha Alec, filling in for Hilda Wayne. Our producer is Alice Matthews. Supervising producer is Kim Lester. And Inga Stunzner is our executive producer. Sisters Let's Talk is created on Wiradjuri, Nanawal, Nambri, Yagara, Turrbal, and Darambal country. And we pay our respect to elders past and present. Hemianamo, thank you. Look at you next time. <laughs>